there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Someone asked me recently, why do I feel like crap when I talk to you? This is a good question for a number of reasons. The obvious reason first is that we're identified. We're identified with ourselves. We're identified with the person speaking to us. In this case, that person is me. And you have to ask yourself, well, why do you feel badly when you talk to me? Of course, you'll say, well, I don't. But you'll have to confess that sometimes you actually do. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? One of the things about this work that is enigmatic and it appears on the surface to be contradictory, I want to address that specifically. I want to address why people feel badly when they do this work, why people feel badly when they talk to me. The first thing I'm going to bring up is a little bit of esoteric Christianity, which comes from the Gospel according to John, it's chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And 21 is, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is a huge problem for us because we get hung up with the words and it plugs us into old associations and we can't read that esoterically. What we do is we read it exoterically. We read judgment, we read love, we read darkness, we read hate, we read works are evil, and we know that this is not about us. We know that we're not evil and that our works are not evil. We know that we love the light and we want to come into the light. We know that there's nothing that we want more than the light. That's why we're all here, because we want the truth. So if someone comes to a teacher, if someone comes to the work, and they love the work, and they want the work, and they love the light, and they want the light, and they know that that is the most real part of them, and that is everything about them, then they know that there's no way that their works could be evil. They know that there's no way that there's anything in them that hates the light. And they know that, essentially, if they feel bad, it's because someone is doing something to them that makes them feel bad. Because they know themselves. They're sure that they love the light. They're sure that they want the truth. They're willing to do anything for it. And so this is a huge problem for us. What the work would say, of course, is, well, you're asleep. You're imagining that you know yourself. You're imagining that you're awake. And you're not really awake. You are asleep and you don't know that. Your imagination has satisfied all of these centers in you that would otherwise be dissatisfied with your sleeping state, with your hypnosis, and they would then show you that you're out of harmony, that you're out of accord. The work would also say that it is the action of buffers, that because you are asleep and because you are not one, because you're fragmented, you're many different eyes, your personality is fragmented in many, many different eyes, that there is no way that you can say who you are or what you are because of the action of buffers. Now, buffers Buffer is like a screen that keeps one eye from seeing another eye that's contradictory. It does not keep you from seeing eyes that are not contradictory. So all of the eyes in you that love the truth and want the truth are all together. We'll say there's this little room, like they're all together in this little room. But there are walls around this room and you can't see any of the other eyes that are outside of that room. 
You can only see the eyes that are in this room, and none of those eyes are really contradictory. And if there are contradictions, they're minor contradictions, contradictions that you can explain away with self-justification, you can explain away with imagination, you can explain away with, well, it could be different, well, I'm working on that, well, that's not really how I am, I don't know how that eye got in here, that eye doesn't really belong in here. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this is what we do, and we don't know that we do this. And we don't know that we do this because of the action of these buffers or these walls that keep these eyes separate. So we got this little group of eyes in here, but over here in this other room can be a group of eyes that are exactly contradictory to that. But the lights are out in that room. And even if we did go into that room, we couldn't see what was in that room unless we took the light of consciousness with us. This work shines a ray of light into our darkness if we allow it. If we don't allow it, it does not shine a ray of light into our darkness. The ray of light is shining outside right now. The sun is shining outside right now. We have the shades pulled. We could close the door. We could feasibly close the curtains and shut out all the light. That is possible to do that. We won't do that, but it is possible to do that. We're happy enough just filtering the light, shading the light, making sure that the direct sunlight does not hit us in the eyes, does not hurt us offend us, burn us. So we can see that we do that with sunlight. What we don't see is that we do that with the light of consciousness. We don't see that there are certain areas that it's simply unacceptable for us to allow the light to shine in those areas. And the reason it's unacceptable is because we have pictures. We have pictures of ourselves as these wonderful, truth-loving, truth-seeking people who would do absolutely anything for the truth. We have pictures of ourselves as being generous and faithful and kind and good. And when something comes up in us that shows that it's contradictory, that we are not that way, then we have self-justification, rationalization, self-love, pride, and vanity that makes us project whatever it is that we have seen in ourselves onto someone else and say, that person's behavior is making me this way. They're making me feel this way. They are making me think this. They are making me do this. If they didn't do that, I would be the wonderful person I always am. Everyone knows that. So this is our condition. This is the state in which the work finds us. This is not the state, however, in which we find ourselves. This is the state or our condition in which the work finds us. There is a difference between our condition as we perceive it and our condition as the work perceives it. So someone who is representing the work, someone who's being the mouthpiece for the work, someone who may even actually be doing the work, that person is going to be bringing the light of consciousness into your life. So when you talk to a person like that, whether you see the light or not, whether you are aware of the light or not, it is there and it is acting. It is acting as a force on you. And when that action starts, you can become very uncomfortable. And if that person asks questions that you do not normally ask yourself, that discomfort can increase until you finally begin to feel like crap. And why you feel like crap is because you are conflicted and you're finding these contradictions in yourself. And it's difficult to get out from under that if someone else is shining the light. If you're shining the light, it's no problem. You just stop. You just get diverted, distracted, self-justified. You get into something else and you just stop. You stop observing. How many times a day do you stop observing? Well, let me tell you. The answer is one more than when you started. That's the answer. You stop observing one more time than all the times that you started. That's how it works. How many times a day do you wake up? You wake up as many times a day as you wake up. How many times do you go to sleep? One more than all the times you woke up. How do we know that? Because you go to sleep again and you have to wake up again. 
this is how we know that. Do we know that really? No, we don't know that really. But this is what the work teaches us. We're very uncomfortable with the things that the work teaches us. We're very comfortable with some of the things that the work teaches us. Which things are they? Well, the things that we agree with, of course. The things that we don't agree with, the things that do not apply to us, the things that apply to all the other people in life, but not to us. Because we've got that part handled. Those things we would be uncomfortable with because they don't apply to us. So the only things that we're comfortable with in the work are the things that apply to us. In other words, the things that we agree with. The things that do not apply to us that we don't agree with, that we object to. Well, that may be true of other people, I can see that they are very proud and vain. But I have overcome that through my work. This is part of the problem. So here is the judgment that the work brings. This is the judgment that esotericism brings. This is the judgment that the conscious circle of humanity brings. It is not their judgment. It is the judgment. And how the judgment works is it is what's so. The light shows what is so. The light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. What does evil mean? I told you last week or the week before in a podcast, in a fat podcast, evil in the work means mechanical. That's all it means. It just means mechanical. No big deal. Who is evil? Hold up your hand if you're evil. Notice that my hand is held the highest because I am very certain that I am mechanical, that I am evil, that there are little mechanical eyes in me that are mechanical. That's all. So take away the judgment that you have on evil. Take away the onerous, stinky, smelly judgment that you have placed on the word. Take that away and you can embrace being mechanical. Yes, I am mechanical. There are eyes in me that are completely mechanical. When I fall into those eyes, I am a machine. When I can raise myself up out of those eyes and go with better eyes, I am less a machine. I will not say that I'm not a machine. I will say that I am beginning to awaken from my mechanicalness. This is what the work teaches us. It takes a very long time for us to really get this. Very long time for us to get this. And a tremendous amount of self-observation. And I don't mean to be harsh, but people do not observe themselves. People do not observe themselves. They imagine that they observe themselves. But if you're observing yourself with prejudice, if you're observing yourself with condemnation, if you're observing yourself with judgment, if you're observing yourself with self-justification, if you're observing yourself with self-love, if you're observing yourself with self-adoration, if you're observing only your pictures of yourself and you're not observing other things that contradict those pictures, you are not practicing proper self-observation according to what this work teaches. You cannot change. You will get no real results. This is not my teaching. This is what the work teaches. This is something that esotericism has taught for thousands and thousands of years. This is not easily grasped by people because people find it very difficult to observe themselves. What people do instead is observe others. One of the things I've noticed is that people have a tendency to be spectators and commentators. Now, if you'll think of a football game and you'll think about being up in that big glass box where the commentators, the news commentators all sit and they're watching their TV screens and they're seeing the cameras that are zooming in on all of the action and all of the plays and everything that every player does. And they've got all these cameras around there. Now you think about this guy down on the gridiron. This guy down there playing the game on the field. He does not have all of these cameras all around. He does not have all of these pictures in front of him that he can see every part. He does not have instant replay. He can't run it back and then relook at it. It's like a photo finish in a race. 
Why do they have a photo finish? Because sometimes the race can be so close that only being able to stop the motion and have people examine it frame by frame at the moment to see this guy was a millimeter ahead of this other guy. And so they can call the race. Otherwise, they could not accurately call the race. Now, this wasn't possible before. So what the work says is that we have to take photographs like that. But we don't do that. We paint pictures instead because we can paint much prettier pictures than we can take photographs. Because when we paint a picture, we can add our own emotions to it. We can add our own desires to it. We can make our nose smaller or bigger. We can make our ears look like this. We can change the color of our hair. Oh, you're a little balding there. Well, we can just fill that spot in there with a little bit of paint, you see. So we have all of this that's going on, and it makes it very difficult to observe. But the work says, no, you need to take photographs. You cannot rely on yourself to paint pictures, to draw pictures. You must use photographs. You must use a work eye, a work camera, to take these photographs of yourself. And then you must be able to look at them sincerely, genuinely, objectively. You can't do this alone. You need help. This is why we gather in groups. This is why we turn to people who maybe have a little more experience than us in this. It's a very difficult thing for us because it's so hard for us to even imagine that anyone could possibly be higher than us because we are the ultimate authority about everything. Who do you trust? You trust your mind. You trust what your mind tells you. You trust what your feelings tell you. You trust yourself. This work comes along and says, you need to begin to doubt yourself and not believe in yourself. And we say, that's absurd. I can't do that. How could anyone do that? Then what you do is you begin to allow the work to take the place of your usual ordinary state of consciousness. This is a very difficult thing to do. And when someone represents the work, it means that that person represents the work to you. So you begin to depend on them. This is a natural thing. Anyone who does this is going to be trying to get you to depend on yourself, but he's not going to push you out of the nest before it's time to depend on yourself, at least if he's careful. Do people make mistakes? Yes, all the time. We're all human. So could people let you stay in the nest too long? Yes, it is possible. Could they throw you out of the nest too soon? Yes, it is possible. Ultimately, you are responsible. No, I'm not responsible. They're doing it to me. So this is one of the problems that we have. That's why you can feel like crap when you talk to me. That's why you can feel like crap when you do this work. That's why you can feel like crap when you are identifying with what you're observing. If you're observing yourself and identifying with it, you're going to feel badly. It's the identification that makes you feel badly because you're not observing yourself as if you were looking at an interesting stranger. You're observing yourself with judgment and you're observing yourself as this is I. That is not I. So you're not truly observing yourself. That's why you feel like crap when I talk to you. When you don't feel like crap when I talk to you is because generally I'm not talking to you about something that offends you. If the truth does not offend you, you haven't found the truth. That's all I have to say to you. If the truth does not offend you, you have not discovered the truth. Because the truth is offensive to who we think we are. Because who we think we are flies in the face of the reality of our being, the truth about us. That's the truth. That's what the work teaches. That's what all esoteric teachings teach. People consistently miss that. That's why I get questions like this set. Unfortunately, those of us who remain mechanical continue to be controlled by mechanical forces. However, if I bump into a machine, whose fault is it? So what this is really saying is if you're upset, it's your fault because you bumped into a machine, because you're mechanical. I find the phrase, if you are negative, it's your fault. 
I find that to be problematic when people use it to shift blame. I find it problematic when people do that. When people use fault as a judgment, as a condemnation, I find that difficult. I look at fault like a flaw or a blemish. So I don't look at it as a blame thing. You're a bad person because it's your fault, because you're mechanical. I don't see it that way. I see it as this. If you have allowed yourself to go with negative eyes, you have allowed yourself to go with negative eyes. No one made you do that. You may have done that entirely unconsciously and mechanically. That you acquired. Now, what you need to be doing is you need to be applying work principles in that situation, and you need to be getting yourself out of those little negative eyes. The problem is, is that we don't wish to. The problem is, is that we like fault-finding and we like blaming others because it exonerates us, because it gives us the feeling that we're right and we're superior. And we like that, and that's what we want. So that's what we do. And this is why we love, the work says, we love negative emotions. So if I bump into a machine, whose fault is it? Well, if I bump into a machine, it may be my fault. It may not be my fault. It may be my doing. It may not be my doing. Why do you think the work says that we must endure other people's unpleasant emotions, unpleasant manifestations? We must endure other people's unpleasant manifestations because we are living here on this planet, because people around us are asleep, and we are asleep to some degree, or else we would not be here. If I'm here, then there's something about all this that I haven't worked out yet. There's something about all this that I have not discovered yet. So that's that. Well, what does that make me? It just doesn't make me anything. Why we have to ascribe meaning to everything, to every little detail, why we have to try and weave it together into some kind of a story is beyond my comprehension other than we are being controlled by the mind. The mind does that. The mind makes up stories. The mind is the fiction writer. The mind is the commentator. If you are connected with your mind, these things are going to come up for you. And if you believe in your mind and if you believe in yourself, in other words, if you believe yourself to be your mind, if you believe yourself to be your thoughts and your feelings, if you believe everything that comes into your head as I think, I feel, I, 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 if you're doing that, you are believing in yourself, you are at the effect of your mind, you are at the effect of your mechanical nature, if you are doing that. If you're not doing that, if you are separating from that, if there's a space between you and your thoughts, and you can see that your thoughts are not your thoughts, and you can see that your feelings are not your feelings, if you have worked hard enough to gain that space, to push open that space between you and those thoughts and feelings, if you've been able to hold that space open, then you have the luxury of being able to see these thoughts and these feelings come through this space. And if you are aware, you can actually stop time. This is called inner stop. You actually make an inner stop and you stop the thoughts and feelings right there and you can look at them. You can freeze them in place and you can look at them. You can examine them and you can see that they're not yours and you can decide what you'll do with them. This I'll keep, this I'll toss. This I want, this I don't. Based on what? Based on what your work aim is. Now, not many people can do that. Maybe some people can do that sometime to some degree. I don't know a lot of people who can do that all the time. I do know that it is possible for my own work and my own verification of this. So it is possible and it can be done. It can be done quite a lot. I think you'll find that the more you do it, the more inclined you will be to do it. The less inclined you will be to allow thoughts and feelings to overrun you. So if I bump into a machine whose fault it is, who cares? The only thing that's important is what am I going to do about it? If something comes into my life that I don't like, who cares how it got there? Who cares whose fault it is? The only thing that's important to me is what am I going to do about it now? Not how did it get there, whose fault is it, why did this person do this to me, how could I be so stupid? Let it go, people. Let it go. 
It doesn't go anywhere. It's story, it's judgment, it's identification. It is hell. You will die there if you stay there. You will perish there. So give it up. If you can't give it up, then just be there. I don't know what to tell you. You know, it's like if, if you don't want to give it up, don't give it up. So this person goes on to say, I love what you said that I should not concern myself with such questions. Well, this is what I look. You can, don't bother with questions. You know, these work principles, it's all very great. But the problem is, is that you, know, you talk about things like recurrence. The work teaches this idea of recurrence. Well, you have no experience of this. You have no experience of living this very life 10,000 times before, sitting in this room 10,000 times before. This is what the work teaches. I don't teach this. Why don't I teach this? Because it has no bearing on your condition and your state right now. All it does is agitate you, agitate your mind, and draw your force out of the possibility of self-observation now. What you decide now is important, not what you did 10,000 times before. What you do now is what's important. That is the focus of the practical application of this work, and that's what I am trying to emphasize and constantly bring us back to. The intellect wants to toy with all these ideas that it can't understand right now. So she says, it brought me out of the state and where I need to be, right here, right now. Yes, that's right. And then the question of the day is, she has a question every day. The question of the day is, one for today is about identification. I have yet to fully understand what this is. Okay, so let me address this first of all. I've already answered this in an email to this person, but let me address it because it's a very important thing. You have yet to fully understand any idea. Don't even imagine for a moment that you fully understand anything. You do not. And the moment that you think you fully understand anything, you have entered into imagination and you are stuck. Your forward motion, your expansion of consciousness, your raising your level of being has stopped, ground to a halt right there at that spot. You cannot go any further because you are no longer observing yourself. And if you are no longer observing yourself, you are no longer changing your level of being. That's it. You cannot possibly change your level of being without self-observation. If you are in imagination, you are not observing yourself. First of all, you're right in this. I have yet to fully understand what this is. Yeah, that's right. And you probably won't for a long, long time to come. And it's better to always leave understanding open-ended. It's very difficult for people to do because we're mechanical. And we think that what we have is what we have. And that's all there is. We never look any further. We find an answer that satisfies the mind. The mind goes over and gnaws on that bone like a dog for ages. I've seen dogs go and bury bones and dig them up weeks later and chew on them some more. What can I say? This is what the mind is like. This is what it will do. It will distract you from observing yourself right here, right now. And it will do it with questions and it will do it with understanding. It will do it with anything, anything at all that it can use, anything. It is a survival mechanism. The mind is a process. It wants to keep the process going because the process going is what gives it existence. It is what animates it. The process animates the mind. That's why the mind doesn't let you meditate because if you stop the process, if you get above the process, then you are free of your mind. And the mind can't live without you. It wants to suck your energy. It wants to draw your force so that it can live. When you get above it and you start to make it your servant, it gets a little crazy and rebellious. It fights that because to the mind that seems like death. Now, the question is, is it only with things or can you identify with people as well? Yeah, you can identify with people as well. Absolutely. Here's how it works. 
When you are born into this world, you are born essence. You acquire a false personality. You acquire traits. You acquire, by imitating the sleeping people around you, you begin to fall asleep and you imitate them. They identify with everything because sleeping people are always identified, always identified to one degree or another, varying degrees, but always identified with many, many, many things all at once. But they do not know this because they're asleep and they take everything as themselves. Everything that they identify with, they take as part of them. So you grow up in an atmosphere like that. So you identify with people as well as things. Yes, absolutely. The truth about us is we are always identified. The only thing that this work can do with us is to help us identify less. How we identify less is through self-observation and separation. In other words, in order to observe yourself, you have to have something besides yourself to look at yourself. Now, there is nothing besides yourself to look at yourself right now. So we appoint a deputy steward, an observing eye, who then becomes deputy steward, to observe. That's his job, to observe. And we use the rule book that the work gives us of how to observe properly. And we try to get this observing eye to learn how to observe properly. We try to protect that observing eye. We try to keep it safe from all the other eyes that want to do its job for it, and they want to do its job not according to the rule book, some other way. We're there. We're stuck there. What attaches us to this? I've answered this before, but let me give you a quick answer again. Identification is attachment. Love is attachment. We identify with what we love. The Gospels put it a different way. Where your treasure is, your heart is. What that means is where your treasure is, your identification is. If you hear a car get hit out in the street, wham, you hear it get hit. You jump up and you look and your car is the one that's been hit. You have identification issues at that very moment. It's like right now, you have a problem. Your car has been hit. Now, if it was somebody else's car, you go, wow, bummer, and you go sit down. You're not identified. You see the difference? So this is attachment. Where your treasure is, your car. Where your treasure is, your heart is. All right? We've looked at it esoterically from the gospel point of view. We've looked at it from the work point of view. Let's look at it from down-home country point of view. Well, how come you're not worried about that? My dog ain't in that fight. I don't care about that fight. My dog ain't in that fight. All that means is if your dog's not in that fight, there's no reason for you to be in that fight. There's no reason to be identified. Your treasure is not there. Your pickup truck is not there. (laughs) Your girlfriend hasn't been stolen by somebody else. You know, it's like you're not identified. So if you're not identified, there's nothing going on there. But that doesn't mean you're not identified with everything else. It means you're not identified with that. It's what you love is what you attach to. Now, what is the purpose of all this? Well, the purpose of attachment, the purpose of love, true love, with no admixture of self-love, the purpose of that is to love what's real. Seeing as we don't know what's real and we're born into a world of sleeping people and they don't know what's real, all we can do with our love is attach it to the same kinds of things that they've attached theirs to, the things that are not real. When those things change, when those things decay, when those things are stolen, when those things are rusted, when the moth eats it, when thief breaks in and steals it, when it just falls apart, we are attached to it. What that means is we think that we are falling apart. We think that we are being diminished, stolen, robbed, that some part of us has been taken away. And we feel this great sense of loss and anxiety. The only way out of this is to remove this identification. This is very, very difficult and it takes a long time. 
So her final question is, is it internal or acquired? It is internal and it is acquired. I've explained to you how it is acquired and now I've explained to you how it is internal. It is internal because it is part of your true nature. You are made to love. That love has been sullied by self-emotions. And as long as that love is sullied by self-emotions, you cannot have pure love. You will not be attached to what's real. You cannot see what's real. One of the Gospels say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is the truth. God is light. God is love. Okay? So let's just say God is light, love, and truth. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see light, love, and truth. Well, what if you're not pure in heart? Well, then you won't see light, love, and truth. You will see some warped, distorted view of light, love, and truth. So what is the heart? The heart is your emotional center. It's what you feel with. It's your emotions. Your emotional center is infested with negative emotions. Because your emotional center is infested with negative emotions, you cannot see clearly because it is not pure. And all those negative emotions get in and sully that pure love that you could have if you could cleanse your emotional center. This is what the work aims at. This is what we are doing here. This is what this is about. This is my aim. And this is what I teach. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.